You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... Російські терористи створили нашим енергетикам настільки складні умови, яких ніхто в Європі ще попросту не бачив. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky suggests that Russia has entirely lost the point of whatever it thinks it is doing. We'll have the latest from Monocle's Carlotta Ribello in Kiev. Also ahead, India and China reach a sort of agreement about a bit of their disputed border, but are they anywhere nearer solving the problem? Later in the show, we'll wrap up the headlines from Latin America and delve into a new report suggesting that younger luxury consumers want their purchases to do good as well as be good. And come on, worse things happen at sea. You can get through this. Just be professional. Oh, I've read that out loud again, haven't I? Buenos dias and bon dia, Andrew. Today is a Latin America special here on the Global Countdown. We even have a special guest, I have to say. And I, for one, cannot wait. That is all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle 24. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. We'll start in Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky has described Russia's current strategic manoeuvring in the country's east as crazy. Granted that Zelensky is perhaps not the most objective judge of such matters, but he does appear to have a case as Russia continues to hurl resources against the smallish town of Bakhmut, even as Ukraine advances towards retaking Kherson, the only major city captured by Russia in eight months of war. Well, let's get the latest from Ukraine now with Monocle's Carlotta Ribello, who joins us live from Kiev. Um, Carlotta, first of all, what's it like to be back? Hi, Andrew. Um, it's uh, certainly different from uh, last time I was here, which was in late July, beginning of August, um, as it was approaching around six months since the war began and also uh, just a few weeks before the independence celebrations. The mood in the summer was very different. Uh, you can this time around feel the tension in the air um, and the heightened security even more than last time. Tell us a bit about how you got there, because it's still no easy undertaking, is it? No, it still uh, remains uh, 24 hours to get in or out of the country. Um, I flew to Poland, to Krakow, and then took a train to Przemysl by the border. And then uh, from that Polish city to Kiev was a 12 and a half hour train. Um, this is the same train that I had taken in the summer. And when we did that trip back then... Um, you the same train that takes you to Kiev first obviously arrives to this town and it was full of people arriving to Poland but equally almost as full going back that was not the case this time around uh, the train arrived full um but maybe i would say was at one third capacity on the way back into uh, Ukraine. Uh, so that definitely marks a shift in uh, movements. And we've seen, of course, um, uh, comments and about the winter and people being prepared about a harsh winter and even being told to, you know, avoid coming back if they're settled elsewhere. Uh, and it might, that might indicate that uh, Ukrainians are listening to those messages. Well, nevertheless, one of the advantages of a long train 
brain trip from journalistic uh, perspectives is that you do get plenty of time to talk to the other people on it. Um, those people you met who were travelling into Ukraine, what were they saying about their reasons for going? Uh, yes, so I spent most of my trip uh, speaking to the person next to me, um, uh, a lovely uh, retired English teacher who was returning to Ukraine after leaving for the first time. So she had attended, um, you know, teachers conference in Poland and was just heading back. But remarkably, she is from Kharkiv. And she was there when the heavy shelling at the beginning of the war was happening. And she was telling me how she had to evacuate the city by going underground and walking the tracks of the metro uh, until the metro, you know, reaches the surface again. And that then there will be a convoy waiting to get people out because walking on the streets was just too risky. People were just being killed. if they dared to venture outside the house. And she was describing the scenes of the metro tunnels in Kharkiv packed with people. Uh, She has now relocated to the West, to Ternopil, where she had some family. And that is a story that is so similar to so many other Ukrainians from the East that have relocated to the West or left entirely. Uh, One other person who I spoke to, um, uh, she was heading back uh, to um, uh, Kyiv to come and meet up some elderly relatives to get them out of Ukraine before uh, the harsh winter. Uh, And again, the majority of travelers were women, um, as expected, as as the, of course, um, mandatory uh, order to stay in the country for young men remains. Um, halfway through the journey, wh- when we were inside Ukraine already, of course, uh, then it was mixed. But of those boarding the train in Poland, uh, over 95% were women. Uh, just finally and briefly, you, you mentioned as Ukraine's leadership have telegraphed that this winter is likely to be difficult and obviously Russia is intent on making it as difficult as possible. What preparations are you seeing Kiev making for that eventuality? Well, they've warned people already of uh, blackouts. These are going to be energy blackouts as scheduled as much as possible. So warning people in advance they they won't have electricity during certain periods to try to spare the energy grid. Um, Just two days ago, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky gave a press conference talking about how uh, for Ukrainians settled elsewhere and not to rush to get back home because it spares the burden on the electricity grid. So those are just some of the preparations for the winter. But everyone is getting ready, you know, assembling firewood in case the heating fails. Um, They are prepared. Carlotta Rabello in Kiev. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing. Here is Marco Sippi in London with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. The Islamic State group has claimed responsibility for a deadly attack at a shrine in southern Iran. State media reports that three gunmen entered the religious site in Shiraz as people gathered for evening prayers. Fifteen people were killed and many more injured. Shell's profits more than doubled between July and September due to a surge in oil and gas prices. The Anglo-Dutch energy giant added that profits reached almost $10 billion in the third quarter. Global energy prices rose following Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
And Germany's coalition government has introduced plans to legalize the recreational use of cannabis for adults. The move has not yet been approved by parliament, but it is thought it could raise billions of euros in taxes and create tens of thousands of new jobs. Those are the day's headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. China and India have never entirely agreed on where the border between them should be. These disputes have occasioned one decent-sized war in 1962, several skirmishes, and a couple of years back, colossal all-in brawls between Chinese and Indian troops, which left dozens dead and hundreds injured. Last month, after no fewer than 16 rounds of talks, an agreement was reached following which both militaries have have disengaged from a border point in Ladakh. However, this seems to be causing yet further disagreement as various Indian voices complain that their country has given up too much and received too little. I'm joined now by Dr Sajan Gohel, a visiting teacher at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, before we talk about the specifics, Sajan, the border generally, how contentious is it? Because it's it's more than one place, isn't it? Well, it's uh, several places, in fact. So you have the border dispute in the Ladakh area, which is principally where the main standoff has been. But there is also disputes in the middle portion of the China-India border where Sikkim is and also where Bhutan. And then if you go to the Far East, there's another dispute over the territory in India called Arunachal Pradesh, which China refers to as uh, South Tibet. So there are many different uh, disputes that uh, India and China currently have over territory. So what was the basis of the agreement reached over this one point? And I guess what drove them to reach an agreement? Was this that both sides didn't want a repeat of those astonishing punch-ups of a couple of years ago? Well, that's in many ways the key dynamic in all of this, because if you cast your memory back to two and a half years ago, in the Galvan Valley, in the area of uh, Ladakh, you had pitched battles, uh, hand-to-hand combat uh, between Indian and Chinese troops, and Chinese troops were using steel bars and pipes uh, with the barbed wire around them. It it was a very uh, ugly confrontation. So there have been many rounds of military talks. They have been slow, arduous. The progress has also not been uh, as efficient as one would have uh, potentially hoped. But that does look like there are some confidence-building measures, but there's still a lot of sticking points over the territory, who's occupying what, and how that's going to resolve itself. Uh, There are, of course, many voices in India, as I was saying at the top, who are not happy about this, prominent among them Rahul Gandhi. And given that it's it's kind of his job uh, to be unhappy with the actions of the Indian government, but he is claiming that Narendra Modi's government has given away a thousand square kilometres to China and received not much in return. Is that actually fair? It's very difficult to prove uh, that claim. It's probably something that he's putting out as a a political stump. As you mentioned, he is the leader of one of the largest opposition parties inside India itself. The reality is, is the, the line of actual control that separates India and China, where the disputed territory is, has not been properly demarcated. Now, it is true that China moved further into the line of actual control two and a half years ago, which is why that standoff Uh, took place. But then subsequently, India also, as a reactionary measure, started taking strategic heights uh, in the area too, because it's to the topography there is very complicated. It's mountainous, it's sea-based. And what happened was that both sides were basically moving forward and backwards. So 
it's very unclear as to how much territory China actually controlled because of the fact that the border area in itself is not very clearly demarcated. And has there been, uh, not just recently, but even in preceding decades, any serious push from either Beijing or New Delhi for a comprehensive settlement of the border? Or is it the case that there's just so many points of disagreement that everyone understands that this would be an enormous waste of everybody's time and energy? Well, every year you have meetings between India and China over the border disputes where they try to resolve uh, matters, but it doesn't seem to make any headway or or progress. What seems to have become a, a game changer to some degree is that China is beginning to now look at the Ladakh area from a geostrategic perspective. They see it as part of a wider agenda to enhance the Belt Road Initiative and also what's known as the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor from Tibet, Xinjiang, through Ladakh into Gilgit-Baltistan in Pakistan itself. The other thing that China is doing is they are now trying to go down this part of revisionism of history. So they are promoting narratives of the ancient kingdom of Zhang which was a Western Tibetan kingdom going back many centuries, in which they claim that that's where their territory belongs, and they're encouraging historians and archaeologists to write that revisionism. So what you're seeing is a different dynamic of what China's pushing. And as uh, President Xi Jinping has now got an unprecedented third term as the paramount leader of China, you'll probably see more of these type of uh, dynamics coming into play. And and just finally, how great a concern is the prospect of further conflict, given that both sides will, one hopes, have telegraphed via this agreement that neither of them actually wants it? Well, keep in mind that the standoff that happened in the Galwan Valley two and a half years ago resulted in the deaths of dozens of soldiers on on both sides. And since then, there have been efforts to try and resolve the issue without escalating uh, tensions. But the Galwan Valley issue is a reminder of the fact that there is a flashpoint between India and China. The two countries are becoming more assertive geostrategically. India also has become very important for what's known as the Quad, which is this grouping with Australia, the United States, and Japan. And in fact, the Galvan Valley standoff is what only pushed India further into becoming a more assertive member of the Quad, whereas in the past, they were more reluctant. So whatever China's strategy is, if it is trying to contain India, in some ways, it backfired because the very opposite has happened. So we can't rule out future problems. And certainly with the Indo-Pacific tilt of the United States, India features very prominently in that. And that is also going to bring more tensions with China in the future, no doubt. Sajan Gohel at the LSE, thank you for joining us. This is The Briefing on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It's time now to take a look at what is making headlines in Latin America. And to do exactly that, I'm joined here in the studio by Monocle's Latin America affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott. Lucinda, you're you're literally right here. You are usually down the other end of a Skype or an ISDN or whatever newfangled trickery we use to put you on the air. Or under a duvet. Or under a duvet (laughs) or, or, or some combination of those. And yet... 
you're right here. To, to what does the United Kingdom owe this place? Oh, it's first such of all? a treat to be here, Andrew. No, it's it's just to visit family. So okay. it's a lovely my hometown of London. So it's wonderful to be back and just to be wandering the streets of Marylebone ahead of our chat. Well, the big Latin America story, of course, is uh, the the looming second round runoff in the Brazilian presidential election between uh, Lula and Bolsonaro. What other what are, sorry, other Latin American nations saying about this? Is is the continent holding its breath? Yeah, so I've been looking through some of the papers this week, Andrew, and El Mercurio, which is the main broadsheet in Chile, has really focused its coverage on the disinformation campaigns in Brazil during this presidential race. So bear in mind that in Chile, during its vote whether to approve a new constitution in September, it also had all these issues with the spreading of fake news. So that's really been part of the broader coverage and what that means for the possible result on Sunday. Um, in Argentina, where Cristina Fernandez remains vice president and who you know governed as president at the same time as Lula, um, there's a kind of more nuanced approach because by editors, because essentially Argentina will go to the polls in exactly a year's time. Mm. So what that will mean for Buenos Aires' relationship with Brazil is still unclear. Uh, some news outlets were sort of touching on uh, Bolsonaro, who reportedly late last night summoned an emergency meeting because polls do end to suggest that he he could lose. And then little Uruguay, which is uh, one of the few in the south of South America with, you know, a conservative government like Brazil's, um, is talking about what a change in government could mean for its possible free trade deal with China. Uh, Itamarachi, the Brazilian foreign ministry, had broadly supported Uruguay's appeal to modernise Mercosur under Bolsonaro and allow Uruguay to trade freely with other nations outside this trading bloc. So that's really what the papers have picked up on, what this might mean for this trade deal if Lula were to win. There is on Friday uh, one final televised debate between the two candidates. The, the previous encounters have been somewhat on the rowdy side and I I don't expect this one to be that much different but does it still matter at this point especially in an election like this where you have two such uh, diverse and indeed divisive characters can there really be anybody in Brazil who hasn't made their minds up? Well quite right I mean I think Friday night this you know the two go head to head again on on one of the biggest television channels in Brazil Globo and as you say if if previous debates are anything to go on several which descended essentially into shouting matches, often never really focusing on, you know, future policy or plans and instead all on ideology and past mistakes. I I really wouldn't hold your breath. And I also because of how relevant is television really today and in today's Brazil. Um, But I do say like whether he wins or loses, Bolsonaro, I think, has really demonstrated in this race that he's forged this durable right wing movement, one that really combines Brazilian conservatism and nationalism with this sort of US-style culture war that's being waged over social media, and it's been extremely effective. So, you know, he has allies in Congress, he has allies in the church, he has allies in agribusiness, so I think he'll be planning the next race for sure if he is defeated on Sunday. Uh, Finally, and just quickly, there is some unalloyed good news uh, for Brazil, which is that tourists are coming back. Yeah, it's actually how much they're spending, which is really interesting. Brazil's central bank on Monday confirmed that foreign travellers had spent over $400 million in the country in September this year, which is the highest monthly finger, sorry, since uh, September of 2016, which was the year that they hosted the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And though 
actual arrival numbers are still at the lower end. This is really because of the return of international flights. So the tourism, tourism minister seems very pleased with himself. Lucinda Elliott, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas, on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Now, the perpetual challenge facing luxury retailers is right there in the job description. And a new survey by the Financial Times and the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising pinpoints a rising hurdle in persuading folk to buy stuff because they want it rather than need it. Younger luxury consumers are increasingly anxious about environmental impact. Well, I'm joined now by Sagra Masiera de Rosen, Monocle's luxury correspondent. Um, There's a lot of quite startling figures in this report, Sagra, but the one that really leaps out is that 68% of luxury consumers under 35 regularly, it says, decide against buying something for environmental reasons. How much of a chill is that figure going to send through the sector? Well, I think sustainability has been a theme for the last few Mm. years, so it's not a huge surprise. Although I would argue that it may be overstated in reality. So, um, otherwise, how will you explain, you know, the growing um, uh, sales of the sector mm-hmm. and the appearance of some uh, huge companies out of nowhere in the last 10 years that really cater to this kind of younger and consumer, right, especially the super young, the kind of generation, Gen C, um, so to speak, like Sheen that do, you know, fast fashion and they have overnight uh, become probably the largest fashion company in the world. So I think that there is, you know, we have to take those responses with a little bit of a pinch of salt. You think it could be that thing of people giving the virtuous response to a pollster rather than the one that reflects the reality of their life? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's my hypothesis. Of course, it's, it's just a hypothesis. But when you look at it in the context of what's going on, obviously sustainability is something that we all care about. And, you know, but I don't think that consumption is uh, going down on the back of that. You may think twice and then and then um, still buy it. Nevertheless, even if that number is a, a little inflated, and you may well be right about that for those reasons, it clearly is still a thing. How are we seeing luxury brands adjusting to that? Well, most brands have already... I mean, luxury in itself um, is... Um, has already intrinsic um, uh, features of... Su- of a sustainable product, right? Mm. Because it is supposed to last longer. Many, many companies, if you think about any, like, think about Patek Philippe or something, like, they actually even, um, uh, 
you know, highlighting that in their marketing that goes from generation to generation. Today, you also have an array of channels to uh, sell your, uh, you know, pre-owned or pre-loved uh, mm. luxury luxury items, fashion items. So in a way, it already has a little bit of that kind of intrinsic uh, sustainability component, which is like the, the the longevity of the product, right? It's different from, you know, more kind of fast fashion uh, um, uh, brands, right? Um, but I think that it's just... Um, a must-have today, you know. Every every brand that I come across has a sustainability strategy. Not it's not perfect because mm. it cannot be perfect because there is a lot of debate about what sustainable means. But everybody's making some kind of effort um, to address this issue and to try to be as um, you know as as light on the planet. Uh, as possible. Uh, one other statistic which leaps out of this report, which probably isn't uh, all that overinflated, especially given the events of the last couple of years, is a huge uptick in online purchasing. People are much less self-conscious or concerned about buying something off the internet, uh, even if it is an expensive luxury item. What does that mean, though, for you know, a high street retail? Are we going to see those luxury shops becoming more and more basically three-dimensional advertisements for the product rather than the place people actually go to buy them? Yes, I, I, that I completely agree with you. There is an increased trend year over over year um, that has been actually accelerated, quite accelerated by the pandemic, you know, in terms of uh, moving towards uh, um, online purchasing. Um, you know, every trend has its country trend, although I do mm. think that this is going to be kind of uh, over time increasing still. Um, you know, we're also seeing shoppers coming back to a more experiential uh, purchase, a more kind of in real life, where it's not only about the transactional aspects of the of the, of the the purchase, but more about the kind of understanding the, the, um, uh, the brand, principles or brand values and also you know interacting in real life uh, so I think it's a balance I don't think it's a um, you know it's a it's a growing trend but we're also seeing a return to a more traditional uh, shopping environment Sagra Masiera de Rosen thank you for joining us you're listening to The Briefing Tune in to Monocle on Culture where we grill our panel of critics to get the inside line on the best in the world of film music art literature and more it's just got this synth section that kind of makes you want to swing through the saloon doors straight to the dance floor. I appreciate that some of the most brilliant art, most of it, grounds you in this moment and makes you confront it. With industry insiders and the odd bit of reportage too, it's bound to keep the most discerning of culture vultures very well fed. Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That is a song that is absolutely going to make you want to put on a pair of tight jeans and go boot scooting, even if it's just in <laughs> your front room. Monocle on Culture, premiering Mondays at 20.00 London time here on Monocle 24 and available thereafter wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It is last thing on Thursday's briefing, which means inevitably it is Fernando Augusto Pacheco's global countdown. And we have a couple of hints, Fernando, because one at the top of the show, if anybody's still listening at this point, um, you you trailed a very special guest. And the other is, of course, those panpipes we heard at the end of the previous sting. So why don't you tell us now what our listeners should be braced for? Well, first of all, it's a very special one. You know, I like to play with the 
format a little bit. We right? have noticed. We I have like noticed. that. I think we need change sometimes. I mean, I can think of a lot of things <laughs> that should change about the global countdown, Fernando, but it's usually the music. Exactly. Well, I think you might, who knows, you might like it today. So I decided to do a Latin America special mm-hmm. where I look at the number one song in five different countries in the region. Okay. And all I can say is different. It's a different song for each country, of course. And we have a special guest here as well. We do. Because, you know, you know, of course, the global countdown is every Thursday, but also every Thursday, we have the lovely Lucinda Elliott giving <laughs> us an update on Latin America. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it combines very well those two segments. It does. And, and, and she was sitting here anyway. And she, lives in, <laughs> and, and she lives in Latin America as well. No, and you've chosen all my favorite nations bar Ecuador on your list. So uh, I'm very pleased you chose the ones I have a soft spot for. Okay, so apologies, apologies in, our, in advance to our many and devoted uh, Ecuadorian <laughs> listeners. Uh, I, I feel woefully outnumbered here, though, Fernando. I'll be back to Ecuador. That's all I can say to, to our Ecuadorian listeners. But I think we should start with Argentina, which I know Lucinda has a lot of experience there in Argentina. You even live there, right? Yes. I mean, so I've been living in Buenos Aires. And so, yeah, we kick off with Argentina. I want to see your opinion on this and yours as well, Andrew, of course. Uh, you'll get it. This is the number one song in Argentina at the moment. It's Rey and Calejero uh, Fino with Tu Turito. El que quiera con vos, que se ajuste los botines, que yo no te escribo rima, yo te escribo lo que mi corazón pide. Si se fue, mami. ¿Quién iba a saber que era mi mujer? Pero mami, me dejaste tan solo y te pienso cada día que enrolo y dibujé en una pared tus iniciales de mi Fernando, that is is clearly of a genre with which we have become very familiar doing these countdowns, which is that is of that genre of annoying song played at deafening volume in taxi you get out of when leaving airport when you're out of your mind with jet lag and you just want a bit of peace and quiet. I can totally imagine a cab in in Buenos Aires playing this. And even this track, Tuturito, I mean, I'm not going to put Lucina on the spot here as well, but Turito, is it something like my naughty boy? Yeah, it's is like it? my bad boy. Or it could yeah. be, in a female context, it would be quite, quite derogatory, really. It's sort of like prostitute. Ooh, it's on that side okay. of really? things. But you, you see, Fernando, the filth that you are yeah, flinging because not even Google, pop fan listeners. Not even the lovely Google Translate was able to help with that, actually. No. So sometimes I'd really have to ask And the name people. of one of the artists, Callejero Fino, basically means like sort of an upmarket street level, you know, kind of like alley cat. Like a callejero is someone from the street. We're off so to a, we, we are off to a know. terrifically unsavoury start here, <laughs> exactly. Fernando. Well, what, what is going on in Argentina? Well, I, I don't know. All I know is that it's a lovely country. And this is a very interesting, though, because actually there's a big revival. A lot of this, this kind of Argentine rap, they talk very much about it's in the style of old style sort of tangueros, tango music that was very popular in the 1950s that dealt with a lot of social issues and poverty and they're sort of resurrecting that through their songs so he's this these duos is part of kind of a tribe of that that's going on at the moment and big social criticism always looking about. on the bright side I, I, indeed and 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 that is the kind of penetrating sociological insight usually missing from these countdowns which is <laughs> is usually just fernando enthusing guilelessly why i tell him everything <laughs> is terrible but we are we are moving along to your home country now fernando be, be very careful what you say because it's my home country indeed <clears throat> i will uh, we're heading to brazil but that's an interesting 
scene number one because I have to say things change so much I actually haven't heard of them but they are doing so well it's basically it's a project called Poesia Acústica which means acoustic poetry and and they release Fernando is this literally going to be acoustic poetry no because my, my, my exit is blocked here because you're both sitting at opposite sides of the table and the gaps are quite thin do not worry there's poetry but it doesn't sound so acoustic to me <laughs> it, it's it's a project by a label called pineapple so they basically mix different artists from the brazilian music scene and they release those songs so this is the uh, poesia acoustica Number thirteen, uh, so that's the so they released twelve, uh, but this one so is... so they've kept trying and they think they've got it right exactly. But it's more of a hip hop vibe. Let's let's have a listen to this acoustic poetry thirteen. <laughs> Can we try that again at the right speed? Actually, I'm so sorry. It's interesting because, of course, I speak Portuguese, right? And I see the lyrics. Yeah, late evening, the bed is on fire. Something like that. A, a, um, a, a subtle uh, illusion. Very there. subtle. But what I like about this project, and I have to say, they really invite very popular names in the Brazilian music, like Luisa Sonza. She's doing so well in Brazil. But interesting kind of new figures like Nina, Chamã, uh, you know, L7, uh, Non, which is, you know, they're they're, they're beginners, you know, in the music industry. So I think this project can give, can put them on the limelight as well. You're suggesting it would be a good thing to encourage more of this. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what, what L- 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 Lucinda. I mean, it's not my favourite. I won't be on. I mean, as in, mm. I think it's very long as well. <laughs> See, I, it's like this, six this minutes the, of this. this. I mean, is, I don't know if I, you know, when you're just sort of, you know, getting ready in the morning, I don't think I'd put it on. But I agree. It's a big project with lots of big stars. Um, and yeah, you know, it's kind of a lighter tone to the... See, this, this is the advantage of the trio format, Fernando. We get a casting vote. Exactly. I, I, I feel like I'm on a bit more of an even footing now. I think Argentina is winning so far, but let's see, let's see. I mean, the next one, I think, come on, we need to respect because she's the kind of, you know, we all know her. She's definitely a soft power icon for her country. We're heading to Colombia here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is uh, Shakira's new song with Ozuna. And the song's called Monotonia. And let's have a clip. You know, the lyrics of this track, I think they're brilliant because it kind of reflects a little bit her personal life at the moment as well. Let's play Shakira Monotonia. Ni la mitad, pero si sí sé que ni más que tú Estaba corriendo por alguien que por mi nieta va caminando Este amor no ha muerto, pero está delirando ya De lo que había ya no hay nada, te lo digo con sinceridad Tú estás frío como en Navidad, es mejor que esto se acabe ya No me repita la movie otra vez que esa ya la vi I mean, I generally wish Shakira well with her endeavors. I mean, I love Shakira. And I think perhaps, Lucinda, you will remember this, that in the mid-90s, she was already quite big in Latin America. But she always sang in Spanish. Yeah. She was one mm. of the first artists. Mm. I mean, and, and I love the fact that she's got a new track out and she's still singing in Spanish. And I think she's kind of 
broadly, I mean, in all the songs we've listened to so far, everyone's speaking, singing in their native language, whereas before, you know, the US was such a reference that people were so trying. And I think she really kind of spearheaded that. And here she is, you know, well, I, I, I mean, it's the total track that I'd be dancing around in my bedroom to. So. And a little gossip here. Of course, we all know that she, I think she split up with her former I, partner. I, I, I did not know that, Fernando. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I have not been paying a great deal of attention. But look what she's saying. I mean, in these lyrics, she says that her ex is as cold as Christmas. So it's quite kind of a biting uh, song. And people is, are thinking is, it's clearly is, against him in a is way. Is Christmas not quite warm in Colombia? Well, it is warm, but I get... Oh, that's interesting. Mm, mm. That's interesting. So she's singing yeah. from the perspective of the Northern Hemisphere. But she was living in Spain. Come on, Andrew. Let's, it's, let's it's pick not, it it's up. It's not all that cold in Spain. I either. definitely recommend the music video to this as yes. well. There's like this... Oh, it's quite shocking with this sort of beating heart of hers mm. that's sort of shot through and then ends up on the floor and then gets put in a safety deposit box. I mean, are, for are, any are listeners, you, Are you recommending, Lucinda, that I watch a Shakira video? Possibly not before lunch, w- Well, Andrew, if I no. must. <laughs> let's do it. Right after lunch, then. <laughs> we're, we're heading to Chile now. I think Chile is an interesting one because they're also, you know, as Lucinda was saying, the revival uh, in urbano music in Argentina. I think Chile is doing, having the same kind of uh, movement here. And this guy, is, I mean, he's very young. He was studying to be a technician, but then he became uh, a viral hit uh, during the pandemic years. So, of course, he froze his studies. And now <laughs> he's this kind of a very popular act. And he plays around with some kind of uh, genres like cumbia as well. And I really like this track. There's a lot of remixes of this one, but we're, we're, not, we're not playing the remixes. This is Pailita with Na Na Na. <laughs> Señorita, venga pa' la disco a escuchar bailita Mejor que conmigo, usted no compita, compita Estoy ganando millones con la visita Ustedes no son ganter, na, na, na Si le pide la plata a su mamá Que dispara la pistola, na what was he studying to become? A technician. Well, he's got something to fall back on. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's, that's nice. It's always, always good. But, you know, he's, he's, he's too young. He's doing very well uh, in Chile. And it's interesting. So far, Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, the number one songs were from local acts. Um, and I decided to choose Uruguay because, of course, Lucinda is here. But I have some sad news for you, Lucinda. It's, it's not actually a Uruguayan artist oh, who is number no. one. I try my best, but, you know, we don't have a Uruguayan artist, the number one in Uruguay. But nevertheless, we should reflect here. You know, it's a very studious way that I do the global countdown. So I can't really cheat uh, here. And exactly. <laughs> Listeners, this is not just slung together. It is very important that we emphasize that. Exactly. Uh, so number one in Uruguay this week is Manuel Turizo with La Bachata. And Manuel is from Colombia. Let's have a listen. <laughs> And 
And Andrew, I have to say, La Bachata is a type of music from the Dominican Republic, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's very the song where you dance slowly with your partner on a dance floor. So it's kind of a little bit romantic as well. Oh, do you do you romantic Uruguayans? Romantic. Right? Well, actually, all of the songs are pretty romantic. Yeah. Actually, that we've listened to, kind of like soulful. But yeah, I could tell immediately from his accent that he's not from Uruguay, even the way he says "calle." Like, um, Lucinda, just before we farewell this now thoroughly extended edition of the briefing, is there a particular Uruguayan artist or record you would like to recommend to our listeners? I think honestly what's been so interesting is this revival of tango. I think really tango, milonga, which are these small sort of sessions, I think anyone who's interested have a good Google of that and you'll find that it's, there's been this whole revival of people who are not well known um, but are doing some fantastic things with music and, and really reflecting on yeah the current situation in, in, in Latin America and performing in, in many a bar which I will be going back to. <laughs> Lucinda Elliott and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both very much for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James, our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing returns tomorrow. I'll be back with today's Monocle Daily at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.